0: Starting off with a confession. I hate feet. <laughs> I hate them. They're ugly, they're like hands with stubby fingers, but on your legs. They're, does anybody else feel that way? I don't like smelling them, I don't like seeing them, I don't like rubbing them, I don't like, I don't like feet. Uh, but you can tell a lot about a person by their feet you can tell a lot about a person by their shoes and so we're going to take a quick quiz at the beginning i'm going to show you a pair of shoes and you're going to try to figure out what kind of occupation what what this person does who is this person so let's look at the first one can anybody tell fireman let's see firefighter very good (laughs) person looks kind of familiar How about this next one? Now, this one is gonna get harder. Astronaut, okay, let's zoom it out and see what we have. Astronaut, hey, good job. Hey, wait a minute. Hey, Robin, can you, yeah. I knew it, I knew it, he's everywhere, he's everywhere. How about this one, a little bit harder? Yeah, we all know this, because it's rodeo season. Boom. (laughs) And then I is that it? We have one more? (laughs) Anybody have any guesses? (laughs) (laughs) Now, just another quick plug. If you want to see how badly Matt will humiliate me next week, (laughs) based on what I have just done, please join us for Palm Sunday. (laughs) It's gonna be um, a riveting time. No, but you really can tell a lot about people and where they're going just by looking down at their feet. You can see, you can make out who they are, what they're about, by the direction you can tell what's their mission, what's their focus, purpose, where are they heading. And although it's not mentioned today, in the passage. I almost feel like you can get a glimpse of what, where Jesus' feet are heading through the passage that we have today. So I'm going to ask you, if you wouldn't mind, um, you've been seated for a few minutes, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? And some of you may never have done this, some of you have done this maybe, and you don't know why, but just a quick teaching moment. We stand out of loyalty and respect for things. You've seen the soldier where the officer comes in and they snap to attention, out of respect and loyalty. We believe that the Word of God is the ultimate authority for things. And so out of reverence, um, we stand today. And I'm going to do something even crazier. I'm going to come and I'm going to read down here if it's okay. Um, This is a practice that's been going on for hundreds of years. Basically, you have the symbolism of the Word that I'm reading in the midst of the people symbolizing that we believe that Jesus Christ, the Word of God, came down and dwelt among us. So, if you would, we're going to be reading Luke 13, and we have the words on the board, but you're welcome to grab your Bible and follow along. Hear the Word of the Lord. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who'd been crippled by an evil spirit. She'd been bent over double for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her and he said, Dear woman, you're healed of your sickness. And then he touched her, and instantly she could stand straight. How she praised God. But the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. There are six days of the week for working, he said to the crowd. Come on those days to be healed, not on the Sabbath. But the Lord replied, "'You hypocrites, each of you works on the Sabbath day. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and lead it out for water? This dear woman, a, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released, even on the Sabbath?' This shamed his enemies." But all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things he did. Have a seat. God, I pray today that you will be with us. Um, I pray that we will catch a glimpse of where you are going and that we will join in and follow where your feet are leading us. I pray this all in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Can I read a story to you? Please answer yes, because that's what I have planned all right here we go you ready get your listening ears on pretend like we're back in fourth grade and you're sitting on a carpet and i'm holding up a book like this with pictures here we go once upon a time there was a girl for the sake of our story we'll call her ella she lived with her mother and father in a magical land she was deeply loved by both parents and she loved them too And they were a happy lot, spending time together, having picnics and fields of flowers, laughing, loving, and enjoying being together. But tragedy is no respecter of people, and as is often the case, Calamity visited this family. Her mother became very ill and quickly passed away. But before she did, she gave Ella these final words. Have courage and be kind. As the years passed, Ella and her father grew closer together, and they shared many wonderful memories. In an attempt to help Ella have a more stable and normal life, her father married a woman named Lady Tremaine, a woman with two daughters Ella's age. Lady Tremaine was lovely to gaze upon, but dark and ugly on the inside. Her only concern was for status. Her only focus was advancing her own selfish agenda of power. Well, as the story goes, the father took a journey for his business, and once again, fate dealt a heavy blow to Ella, and her father never returned. Struck with illness while away, he died away from his family, his home, and his beloved daughter. With the passing of her husband, Lady Tremaine began to display her true wickedness, With no respect for her dead husband or the new stepdaughter, she took to extravagant parties, expensive dresses, and opulent living. And in order to afford this, she fired the household staff. With none left who truly loved the home or the father who owned it, it was not difficult for Lady Tremaine to push Ella into the role of servant. Ella was reduced to serving her family, the family of an unkind woman, never allowed to participate in the life of the family, never allowed to eat with them. She was moved to the attic to be seen and not heard. And this all made perfect sense to Lady Tremaine and her two daughters. Why would they allow such a wretched girl to be around them? Her filthy cinders would dirty the beautiful garments that conceal their darkened soul. Are you catching who I'm reading about? Okay, I just wanted to be sure. Such was the case for Cinderella for years. Each day she felt less and less part of the family that she had welcomed into her heart. Each passing day reminded her that she was more of a servant or hired hand than an heiress to the home where she worked. Once she was asked why she didn't just leave the home. Why put up with the animosity? Why choose to serve the very people who should have loved her but didn't? Her answer was simple. My parents loved this place. My parents are still part of this place, even though they're no longer here. And I choose to love my parents by loving what they loved. Well, the story went exactly as one would expect. She had a chance encounter with royalty in the woods, and the prince loved her instantly. He returned to his castle and invited the entire kingdom to a ball, just so he could see Ella again. And he wasn't disappointed. When Ella appeared, she was the most beautiful woman in the room. Her outward beauty was only matched by her inward beauty. The prince immediately chose to spend the rest of his life with her, but all he was given was a stolen moment, a gonging clock striking midnight, and a glorious glass slipper that Ella left behind in her haste. Never the kind to give up, He had his highest advisor and the head of his armies search the kingdom for the princess who vanished. But the advisor, who should have cared deeply for the things that his prince cared about, well, he had his own intentions. He was more concerned with power, expanding his kingdom and making sure the kingdom kept up appearances. The advisor lost sight of the fact that he was only called to serve the king and the king's wishes. Thankfully, despite the advisor's ill intent, the stepmother's deceptive desires of glory, Ella was found and identified through her feet. Because you can tell a lot about a person and where they're going by their feet. And without ever wavering, she had courage and was kind. I read an article this past week. It's called... It was called, Science Says Lasting Relationships Come Down to Two Basic Traits. And it's a study you might have seen. It's been around for about six months, um, the results. It's by a guy guy named John Gottman. You may recognize his name. Um, Pastor Matt um, relied on him heavily when we were talking about relationships uh, in our last series. But this is what he said. He said, basically, relationships come down to two things, kindness and generosity. Kindness and generosity. And then he went on to describe there are two kinds of people in relationships. There are masters, and the masters are the ones who are always looking for the good in people and the good in opportunities. They're always trying to find ways to appreciate things and people. And on the other side of the masters, you have the disasters. I love those names. The masters. It sounds like a wrestling match. The masters and the disasters. The disasters are the ones who are always looking to criticize. They're always looking for that fault in someone or some situation. They're never quite happy. And Gottman says there are two kinds of people, those two kinds. And here's the other thing. He says relationships come down with these masters and disasters to what he terms as bids. Now, these bids are these requests for relationship requests for responses and it can go like this you can have two types of response you can have a turning toward or you can have a turning away and let me give you an example here's how it goes um let's say a husband has a bird no let's don't say that let's say a husband loves birds absolutely loves them and one day he's sitting by his window and he says oh honey look at that beautiful bird he's making a bid He's asking for a connection, a relationship. Now, the wife has one of two options. She can turn away, which is often displayed by, oh, yeah, or I'm on the computer, or leave me alone, or I'm reading, or very casual responses. Or she can say, this bird is clearly important to my husband. It's important enough for him to mention it, I wonder if I should show the same attention and engage my husband in a conversation. And that would look like, wow, you're right. That is beautiful. Are those rare? I haven't seen many of those. And instantly, you have this turning toward as opposed to turning away. Does that make sense? You with me? Now, here's the kicker. In the six-year research, they found that after six years, those couples that were divorced, there was a 33% turning toward rate in their conversation. So basically, every time your spouse said something, three out of ten times, it was positively responded back. Seven out of ten, you were pushed aside, kind of, and your thoughts were discarded. Those that were married... 87% turn-toward rate. Basically, the marriages that were happy and strong were the ones where the spouses were willing to turn in towards the love of the other person and engage in that love and make it theirs, not just his or not just hers. And they found that kindness is the glue that holds it all together. Showing kindness makes someone feel cared for, validated, understood, loved. And then the last thing they found in this study, there are two types of people and their views on kindness. And I'll let you figure out which one is the master and which one is the disaster, which one is the turning away and which one is the turning toward. There's the first kind that says kindness is what it is. You're either kind or you're not. You either have it or you don't. Wow, that person is kind. Wow, that person isn't very kind. Then there's the other kind that says, kindness is a muscle. It's something that we choose to use, choose to flex, choose to grow, choose to strengthen, because kindness is what holds things together. Now, Figuratively, you could look at the masters and the disasters, the turning towards and the turning away, and you could see two pairs of feet. If you, if, you, if you looked at the couple who are turning toward each other, you have two pairs of feet that are moving in the same direction because you can tell a lot about a person and where they're going by their feet. For these couples, they've turned towards kindness and generosity. I find these stories of Cinderella and um, this study to have significant meaning in the passage that we just read. Let's back it up and let's look at the story. Jesus is preaching in the synagogue. This isn't anything new. He preaches in the synagogue regularly, I would say, I'm guessing, Um, And the synagogue wasn't, you know, we're not talking about the temple, the Holy of Holies. Um, Historians say that there were probably close to 400 synagogues in Jerusalem. So, you know, you can think of synagogues like churches. Jesus was preaching at a church that day. He was preaching in one of the synagogues, and he sees a woman. Now, one of the things I love about Luke is he's always big on gender equality. So we have, he sees this woman in 13. If you go on to chapter 14, he's going to see a man that is hurting. Luke is all about, you know, Jesus is for everyone. This isn't a, a boys club. Jesus is for everyone. And Luke also is very specific. She was bent over for 18 years. Now, the obvious question is, how would Luke know this? And a lot of people say, well, Luke is very famous for, for giving specific illnesses and specific times or, or links. And it's not necessarily that he knows specifically, but what he's trying to say is, this wasn't you know, oh, that poor lady had a crick in her neck. She needs a good chiropractor. No, this was, this was a life-altering thing, and it had been going on for a long time. This is what Luke's trying to say. This is something that can't be healed naturally. This is something that needs a divine healer. And the wonderful thing about this passage, I love this, Jesus takes the entire initiative, If you look back in the past, it's not like her faith, you know, brought her to Jesus or her obedience or she was, you know, her, her commitment to the temple or the synagogue. No, no, no. It was Jesus was preaching and he saw this woman. She was bent over. She didn't see him. She might have been hearing him, but she would most likely have no idea who he was. But Jesus saw her and he had compassion on her. And he heals her. He lays his hands on her. It's the first time in Luke that we see Jesus laying hands on someone, which um, in that day, in the Jewish custom, that would be seen as a blessing. He lays hands on her. He heals her. And I love the scripture. It says, how she praised God. This was all out, full throttle. I am healed. Praise God. This wasn't a, oh, that feels pretty good. I think I'll take a walk. No, this was bam, it's done. The Bible, the, one of the um, translations says, Jesus said, You are released. It is a perfect present tense. You, it's happening now and it's happening for good. You are released. This isn't a, I'm going to give you some medicine, to help you feel better. You are released. Now then you get to the synagogue leader who I would compare to the advisor in Cinderella or the turning away from. And this leader has the weirdest response. "Ah, oh, I can't believe you healed her on the Sabbath. I mean, seriously, we have rules here, Jesus. There are six days. Why couldn't she come on a Tuesday? She's got to come on the Sabbath and you've got to heal her. But I love Jesus' response because he's not allowed, he's not about to let this miracle be derailed by this leader's indignant attitude. And he's like, you hypocrites, you do the same thing. You unstrap your donkey or your ox so that it can go out and get water, isn't that work? And yet you do that because that's the humane thing to do. How much more that this woman who's been afflicted for 18 years isn't it right that I heal her, even if it's on the Sabbath? I want to. I, I wish it had parentheses and said, especially on the Sabbath. And see, this is where we get to the meat of the passage. See, Luke three times has Jesus preaching on the Sabbath in the synagogue. You remember the first one was his first sermon, where he Preaches out of Isaiah, and it's found in Luke 4. And he says, This he came to a village of Nazareth, his hometown, his boyhood home, and he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released. Woman, you are released. He sent me that the captives should be released, that the blind should see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Then he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently, and then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard today has been, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Now, if he were doing this in 2015, he would have taken the mic and went boom. But he's basically saying, it's happening this day. The kingdom of God is happening now. See, that's the reason Jesus came. To release the captives, to heal those who couldn't see spiritually, to set the oppressed free. Jesus tells us in Luke 4, that it's been fulfilled that day. And then I love in Luke 13, he literally frees and releases the captive. It's like he said, I read this in the scripture. I told you what's happening. Just in case you didn't catch it, I'm going to show you it's happening. The kingdom of God is here. I love how, um, how John Nolan puts it, um, when, when he's dealing with the, the leader who's indignant. He's, John, John says this, As Jesus comes across her in this Sabbath setting, no amount of Sabbath scrupulosity will keep him from bringing liberty to this particular captive. See, that's where Jesus' feet are pointing. He's moving straight toward the kingdom of God. He's not wavering from this. He's going straight toward the kingdom. I read another quote. I love this. Healing on the Sabbath and the twin parable that follows in chapter 14 reveal both the power and the growth of the kingdom. Jesus exercised lordship over both the Sabbath and over demons and in doing so fulfilled the true meaning of Sabbath and revealed the power of the kingdom and the defeat in the defeat of Satan's reign. See, the the synagogue leader had forgotten. Sabbath wasn't simply about not working. There was a deeper meaning. Sabbath was the reminder that they had been captive and they were set free. They had been slaves and God had miraculously rescued them. Uh, Another quote I love, the Sabbath was a reminder that God had delivered them from their bondage in Egypt. It was also a release from the bondage To the work of the week and a foretaste of the coming Sabbath for the rest of God, the people of God. For Jesus to break the bondage of Satan in this woman and lead her into the freedom of the kingdom was not breaking, but fulfilling the Sabbath. See, the Jews would all agree that God's work of sustaining creation continued on the Sabbath. It was the claim of Jesus that in his actions, God was in fact continuing his work. Through healing and deliverance. See, this passage isn't really even about a woman being healed, although that's a great part of the story. This passage is about the kingdom of God. Advancing. This passage about where are Jesus' feet pointing? They are pointing straight toward the kingdom of God. It's going to take a path through Jerusalem and it's going to have a pit stop on the cross, but we are advancing straight toward the kingdom of God. There is no left, there is no right. Jesus is going straight toward the kingdom of God. And to back it up, right after 13, you may remember we've talked about this in the past. Right after that is the parable of the mustard seed, and we talked about how. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts in some of the smallest places, and yet it grows to one of the largest bushes that there is. The kingdom of God is like yeast. The kingdom of God, it doesn't matter how small it is, if it gets in you, it gets all of you because yeast takes over. The kingdom of God is taking over. You can deny it, you can accept it, that's irrelevant. The kingdom of God is advancing even now. Amen, yeah. It's unstoppable. It may appear small, but it's backed by the power of the creator of the universe, and so it will succeed. The small and hidden beginnings of the kingdom belie or fail to give a true picture of its power to move into the world with life-changing force. There's no teaching here that goodness will ultimately conquer by some inevitable evolutionary process. Rather, Christ's word is that a new force, a new dynamic, a new fact has entered the scene. A seed's been planted. Leaven's been placed in the loaf. There will be growth because there's life. The kingdom has to be reckoned with because it's powerfully present and effectual to make change. I love that. So we have this woman. I even love the language of Luke. Even the language is saying that there's a transformation happening. It starts off as, Jesus sees a woman. Very plain, very, you know, it's not a proper noun. It's, It's just, there she is. Most likely implying... There she is, she's bent over, she's probably irrelevant, she may even be bent over because of something that she did. It may be God trying to, you know, put her in her place, we don't know. But by the end of it, she's no longer this woman, she is this daughter of Abraham, which I love. They say that, you know, people knew about sons of Abraham, but this daughter of Abraham may have been kind of a Lucan thing, it's like, it's kind of like my wife and all her friends are called cronies and all the husbands are called bronies. Um, it's a made-up word, but we know what that means. And, and Luke is saying, okay, you've got these sons of daughters. Now let me tell you, she is this daughter of Abraham. She, we, this kingdom isn't just for the guys anymore. It isn't just for even the Jews anymore. This kingdom is expanding, and it is for everyone. So you have this paradoxical inversion this woman who becomes this daughter of Abraham. You have this woman who enters the scene most likely in shame. And yet, by the end of this passage, she is transformed and elevated to a daughter of Abraham. And inversely, you have this leader of the synagogue who would have most likely been held in high regard. And by the end of the passage, it says... He was put to shame. Because the kingdom of God is not about, it's about. We we think in our in our human nature, um, while I was reading about this research, I was amazed at how many people were bashing the Cinderella movie. I can't believe she's such a victim, and kindness is her only weapon. What are we teaching our daughters? Isn't that? And I sat there thinking you've missed the whole point. The kingdom of God, Jesus is about the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is kindness. The kingdom of God is love. And in our human nature, it's so easy for us to flip those things around. That's why every now and then we need this reminder about where the kingdom of God really is, where Jesus' feet are really pointing. So all the while we have this figurative look at Jesus' feet in this passage. He's clearly moving toward the kingdom of God. You can tell a lot about a person and where they're going by their feet. These are the people that have kindness and the mindset of the kingdom of God. So there you are. Three stories, Cinderella, the study, and the woman. Cinderella, released from shame of the servant, elevated to the queen of the land. You've got the, the masters and the disasters, and the da- disasters are the ones who turn toward and engage, and those are the ones who show kindness and generosity. And then you've got Jesus, who elevates this woman from shame to daughter of Abraham. And you can see it all by where their feet are pointed. I sometimes wonder where my feet are pointing. I wonder if you've ever considered where your feet are pointing. See, if I position myself at Jesus' feet, I would clearly see the direction his feet are pointing, right? I mean, if if I turn toward this Jesus wouldn't I clearly see the things that he cares about? Wouldn't I clearly want to engage in the things that are important to him? So I I wonder where my feet are pointing, which then leads me to wonder, well, where do I stand in the story? You know, it's easy to say, man, I wish I was the Cinderella figure or the master figure or the woman figure because the ending is pretty good for all of them. But I can't help but wondering, you know, how many times am I more like that synagogue leader who's more concerned with preferences over caring, who's more concerned with the way things are than seeing the way things really are? I wonder sometimes if I'm... I want to be the master, but I wonder if sometimes I fall into that disaster-type person. Choosing to turn away from the things that Jesus clearly cares about, whether it's human trafficking, whether it's helping the poor, whether it's the fact that 1.1 miles from here, the school that we support is probably, um, last year it was like 91% free or reduced lunches. There is need all around us. And yet, I wonder how many times I'm like, well, if we could just get them to church, we'd fix them. When the kingdom of God is really more about expanding, going out, than it is, we'll help them if they get here. Maybe I'm like, more like the woman, bent over for 18 years. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, she doesn't... She, 18 years, the only thing she sees is her feet and the ground in front of her. I wonder if she'd forgotten that she was created to stand upright. I wonder if she had ever gotten to the place where the stigma of what that illness may mean, according to them, was overwhelming. I wonder if she ever got to the place where... She just said, it's easier to be hopeless and accept that than it is to live within the tension of the reality that I'm in and the hope that it can be different. How many times do we accept and even resign ourselves to so much less than the kingdom of God has for us? I mean, she's looking down. She can't look up. How could she even consider anyone or anything outside of her small scope? Am I like that? I see it firsthand the pain that illegal immigrants must be going through. I, I see people being dealt stunning blows of physical defeat. Do I choose to bury my head and only look at the ground in front of me because I'm afraid that the kingdom of God won't be what I see if I look up and I'm not going always in the direction that Jesus is going, which is toward bringing the kingdom of God? I don't know. I've struggled with this this week. Um... You don't always like what you see when you put yourself in the story. But there's good news. There is always good news when we look at the scriptures. Jesus' feet are always pointing toward the kingdom. They're always heading towards the release of the captives whether it's physical, spiritual, emotional, mental. And if I'm bowing at his feet, I can easily see the direction that he is going. And we've often heard Jesus bids us come and follow him. And I think about that bidding, which means I have a choice. He's bidding me to come and follow him, to join him in the kingdom of God. Am I going to choose to turn away? Or am I gonna choose to say, wow, this Kingdom of God thing, that's pretty serious to Jesus. It's kind of a big deal to him. Maybe if if I love Jesus, that needs to be a big deal to me too. You know, it's easy to say, Jesus, I I know they're hurting. I'm busy though. I'm I'm working on fixing my part of the hurting right around here. And we miss the fact that Jesus is saying, Do you see where my feet are pointed? The kingdom of God is advancing. Advance with me. So today, may this be the day that we choose to say, Jesus, I turn toward you. Use me to bring your kingdom. Pray with me. God, we love you. And we know that your kingdom is advancing We know that your kingdom has come and yet so many times we choose to live as suburbs of your kingdom in our own little kingdom. God, would you forgive us? I pray right now that you will bring us so close to your feet that we can clearly see where you are going I pray that you'll help us to see the kingdom of God more clearly in and around us. And God, I pray for a turning toward you so that we can truly engage in your kingdom. The band's gonna sing just a quick verse. And I don't know if this message is for you or if it's just been for me this week. Um, But I'd be remiss if I didn't at least say we have a great place. If you're feeling something, we have a great place for you to come and get things settled. And maybe you're feeling a little bit like Cinderella, like you're always the one being beat up, like you're always the one just kind of surviving, wondering when that rescue is going to come. And you need to pray. You need that prince to come and rescue you. Maybe you're thinking, I'm, I'm in that master category. I've got a good marriage, life is going well, and you just wanna come down and pray and thank God for his guiding and directing in your life. The altars are open. Maybe you say, wow, I never thought about it like that before, but I'm kind of more of a disaster type of person. And it scares me to think where my friendships my relationships and my marriage may go if I don't get some help. And maybe you wanna come and pray. Maybe you're like that woman, you've been bent over for so long, you've forgotten that you were created to stand up. Maybe you're like um, that leader who has a hard time letting go of your personal preferences this time is yours. I invite you to come and pray. Whether it's praying for help, praying for guidance, thanking God for what he's done. But as they, as they sing, uh, use this time as God would have you use it.